All right, so uh, a little bit of announcement. Today, we're, I have to move the office hours. I've got a meeting that actually starts at 9. I'm going to miss the first hour of it, but um, it goes till noon. So I have to uh, run to that at the end of the class. So at the end of class, I'm literally going to run out the door. So sorry about that. Um, if you have questions for me, uh, you come to office hours. I'm just moving the office hours. They're still today, but instead of 10.30 to 11.30, they're going to be between 1 and 2 today. Same place, first floor LSB in that kind of common study area. So uh, two lectures left. OK, so we've done fatty acids now. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, amino acids now. Or another way of uh, calling this lecture is metabolism of nitrogen. All right? Uh, nitrogen's a weird molecule, or a, near, a weird functional group in biology. Um, when we're talking about nitrogen, we're talking about uh, amino acids. We're also talking about nitrogenous bases, but for the purpose of the class, we're going to focus more on, on amino acids. There is probably a lecture we could do on synthesis and breakdown of, of the bases in, in RNA and DNA, but we're not going to cover that. Um, so where do we get nitrogen from? Let's talk a little bit about that, and we'll talk about how we put it in amino acids for a little bit first. Uh, to use in a biological system, we need to have nitrogen uh, in the reduced form. The other term that's used for reduced nitrogen is fixed nitrogen, okay? So, or at least not gaseous nitrogen. So we'd have fixed nitrogen, and in a biological system, we need it NH3 or NH4. The other names for these are ammonia and ammonium. Uh, whether you have ammonia or ammonium usually depends, depends on the pH. So they, these are in equilibrium with one another when they're floating around. And uh, there's a pKa of ammonia, ammonium around, I think, around 6 or 7. So, so where do we get uh, NH3 and NH4 that's going to be used in a biological system? Well, we could take a uh, salt of a nitrate or a nitrite salt, and we can reduce it. Okay, So we've got uh, nitrate, which can be reduced with NADPH, this enzyme nitrate reductase. Uh, that will reduce our nitrate into nitrate. And the nitrate with three NADPHs, four protons, and then with an enzyme called nitrite reductase, will convert that in NH4. And that's not so difficult, right? Um, that, that can be done rel relatively easily. The problem is that these nitrogen salts are not very common. They're not very abundant, right? So we can get some from the reduction of these oxides of nitrogen, but the real depository of nitrogen on Earth is in the atmosphere, is in, is in nitrogen gas, right? So the majority of the air we breathe is nitrogen gas, right? So there's a bit of oxygen there, obviously. There's increasing amounts of carbon dioxide, uh, but still relatively less, car much less carbon dioxide. But there's a huge amount of nitrogen gas. And so it would be really great to be able to get nitrogen from nitrogen gas. The problem is that. Uh, it's very abundant, that's good, but nitrogen gas is very, very stable and very, very difficult to reduce. It's very hard to get those two nitrogen atoms apart from one another. We can do this chemically in the lab. We can take nitrogen gas and convert it into ammonia. We have to heat it to 450 degrees Celsius and put it under about 200 atmospheres of pressure. That is not the situation you typically find in a living organism. So there's got to be a different way of doing that. The question is, can we do that enzymatically? The answer is yes. It's only done, however, by certain what we call nitrogen-fixing bacteria. One famous species of this is called rhizobium. This lives in a symbiotic relationship with the roots of legumes. Legumes are things like peas and lentils, peanuts. Okay, so basically, this is the root of a legume plant. And you get these nodules, or these nodes, filling forming on the, on the root of that plant. It looks ugly, but it's critical. Uh, what happens is the, the plant creates this environment for which the bacteria is happy, and it lives in these kind of nodes, and they have a symbiotic relationship. The bacteria basically dedicates all its energy into fixing nitrogen, gaseous nitrogen, N2, and then provides fixed nitrogen to the plant for the plant to be able to grow. So basically the plant is making, so when you put fertilizer on, on a plant, there's a lot of 
components in that fertilizer to make it grow. And um, one of the major things in fertilizer is, is fixed nitrogen. So uh, basically the, 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 the rhizobium bacteria is in, in effect, in a fashion, uh, fertilizing the plant. Uh, and then in, in exchange for that, the plant basically gives the bacteria whatever it needs to live. The bacteria doesn't really have to worry about making its own food. The, the plant provides that for the bacteria. So they have a very happy relationship doing that for one another. Um, the enzyme, mm, I'll come back to that. The enzyme that does this in um, enzymes that, that fix, the organisms that fix nitrogen, they have these enzymes that perform this reaction. Uh, it's called nitrogenase. It's often more accurately called dinitrogenase. Okay, so a dinitrogenase enzyme is an enzyme that is capable of pulling nitrogen apart and reducing it to ammonium, ammonia or ammonium. Okay? This enzyme is always in kind of two bits. All right? So these are reduction reactions. Right? We're, we're trying to take electrons and we're trying to, you can imagine that uh, you know, N2 has the minimum number of electrons possible when N2 is reduced into NO3 or NO2, there's some more electrons in there, but it's not fully reduced. And then NH3 or NH4, similar in concept to carbon that we talked about previously, that would be the fully reduced form. So to get N2 to NH3, there's quite a few electrons that we need to put on that, uh, 16 to be precise. Right? And so what we're going to do here is we're going to take, uh, I thought it was 16. Is it 16? No, it's 16 ATP. Sorry, six electrons and 16 ATP. Um, and the, the enzyme that does this is always in two halves. The half that directly puts the electrons on the nitrogen is called the dinitrogenase. Okay? So that nitro dinitrogenase needs a source of electrons, right? It does not pull those electrons directly from a substrate. There's another enzyme that's in complex with that called the dinitrogenase reductase. The dinitrogenase reductase takes the electrons from some substrate and passes them on to the dinitrogenase. And then the dinitrogenase is the component of the enzyme that puts the electrons on, on N2. This requires a lot of ATP. And I don't want to get into too many details about this, but I will point out a, a few things. Okay. The dinitrogenase reductase has a lot of these iron sulfur redox clusters that we talked about a little bit when we were talking about some similar ideas to what we were talking about when we were talking about electron transport chain. And that's not surprising, right? We talked a little bit about electron transport chain, the movement of electrons from one thing to another, and they often have these types of redox centers. That's fine. Uh, the other important bit that I want to talk about is this FEMO. This is the funny one. This is the, 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 the interesting, strange, uh, exciting one. This is the one that's in dinitrogenase, and this is the unique cofactor that has that specific capability of pulling nitrogen apart and reducing it. This MO is molybdenum, so this is a very a kind of a rarer element, one that we don't often come across, uh, and that molybdenum atom is right here in this big, very complex uh, cofactor. It's linked to the protein. You can see there's this histidine here that links to this cofactor. It's also got homocitrate, which is a version of citrate, which is a citric acid cycle intermediate. That's kind of part of it. So there's a carbon skeleton in there that holds it in place. You don't need to... I would like you to remember that this dinitrogenase has this unique atom in it, this molybdenum atom in it. And that's important for the ability to fix this nitrogen. Some dinitrogenases don't use molybdenum. They use vanadium. Right? which is another interesting, wild, rare, rarer element. Okay. So they need to do, uh, where do we get electrons from? Uh, they can be from things like NADH. Uh, they can also be, there's at least one bacteria that uses pyruvate as its source of electrons. Okay. It'll take pyruvate and make acetyl-CoA from that and split off carbon dioxide. So it's going to take eight electrons off. I talked about on the previous slide, six of those are going to go from reducing a nitrogen into two ammonia or ammoniums. Okay. The other two electrons, whenever you make fixed nitrogen, 
there is a required generation also of nitrogen gas. So you're going to take two protons, and you're going to reduce those two protons into, into nitrogen gas. Okay? So this is basically what you burn in a space shuttle, okay? or what they talk about burning in a car. Uh, what else do I want to say about this? Yeah, so this also requires, so you've got nitrogen gas, 10 protons, 8 electrons, and 16 ATP. This is very expensive. Okay? It takes a lot of energy to do this. Because nitrogen is very stable. It's not, it doesn't want to come apart. From that, you get two ammoniums, or ammonia, 16 ADPs, 16 phosphates, and one molecule of hydrogen gas. Okay. Going back to that kind of that node of, of the, what happens in the rhizobium, why does that node form on the root of the plant? Well, nitrogenase doesn't only bind nitrogen, it also binds oxygen. Okay? So, uh, and when it binds oxygen, it's inactivated. It's dead. It doesn't work anymore. And so the, the, the host plant tries to create in those nodes, in those like, things that look like little tumors on the plant, it tries to create this anaerobic environment, a very oxygen-poor environment. Right? So it does that by... Um, having a very high kind of metabolic rate in around there to basically deplete the oxygen that's there. It also makes this molecule called leg hemoglobin, okay? Leg hemoglobin looks like hemoglobin, all right? But its job is just to bind free oxygen the same way hemoglobin might in your blood. Leg hemoglobin also binds oxygen and just gets rid of it. it just, it's basically an oxygen sponge that's trying to make sure that oxygen is kept away from rhizobium, the bacteria, so that it can make fixed nitrogen without having its uh, nitrogenase inactivated. Yeah? The molybdenum cofactors for dinitrogenase. No, no. So the, so the dinitrogenase, which has the molybdenum cofactor, is what is doing this. It is what is taking it down here. So the dinitrogenase is taking the electrons that have been passed down and putting them onto uh, nitrogen gas to make fixed nitrogen. And after that, you've got the oxidized dinitrogenase. So this dinitrogenase to do another round, has to be, have electrons given to it. The electrons that are given to it are given to it by, not from, directly from NADH or pyruvate. The electrons that it gets are given to it from dinitrogenase reductase. Okay? Dinitrogenase reductase gets the electrons from something like NADH or pyruvate. So it's basically a bit of a, it's almost a little bit like an electron transport chain in the nitrogenase. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so six go on the nitrogen, and two go on the nitrogen gas. You have to make a nitrogen gas to make a, to, to fix a, a nit you have to make a hydrogen gas to fix a nitrogen gas. So it's six for the nitrogen and two for the hydrogen. Okay, so that's where we get ammonia, ammonium in biological systems, and we all rely on this, right? If all of a sudden all the rhizobium bacteria or rhizobium-type bacteria decided to pick up and leave, we'd have a problem on Earth living because kind of all the fixed nitrogen that we use in biological systems, or at least a major proportion of it, comes from, from these organisms. There's a lot more nitrogen in biological systems that comes from this path than from us just having to find ammonia lying around. Okay, so we need... So most of the lecture is about how ammonium or ammonia is used to make amino acids, all right? Um, we need it to make amino acids, but high levels of it floating around your body are toxic, right? So you guys know ammonia. It's basically what Windex smells like. You smell Windex and you wake up, right? It's not, that's, I don't know if you guys read 
you know, old stories, old novels where they, have, where they used smelling salts, right? You know, if someone faints, it's like some Pride and Prejudice era book where someone was overcome with emotion and they fainted and they get out the smelling salts to wake them up, right? Smelling salts is basically some nitrogen salt that they put under someone's nose and we have a very, very potent reaction to that. We smell ammonia or ammonium and it makes us freak out. So you put the, the, the smelling salts under someone and they wake up. So, I mean, that's, that has something to do with the fact that it's, in general, in high levels, it's toxic, right? So we have a very high ability to, to smell that. We can't smell many things, but we can smell that. And so um, you want ammonium, but you don't want free ammonium floating around so much. So how do we get rid of free ammonium? Well, uh, one of the main ways that we get rid of it is we aminate glutamate into glutamine. Okay, so glutamate, if you remember, is an amino acid that uh, is also, it's also, glutamate is also glutamic acid, right? Uh, and so it's got a carboxylic acid group and it's our group, right? If you take glutamic acid and you swap the O- for an amido group, a, a nitrogen, that's now glutamine, okay? So Glutamate has one N in it, the one, the same N that all amino acids have, the one that's the NH2 at the, at, the, at the start of it, at the front of it. And glutamine has two nitrogens in it, the one at the front and the one in the R group. And so by burning an ATP, you can take ammonia or ammonium and put it on glutamine. Right? And this step is highly regulated, right? So um, glutamine is one is a very very abundant amino acid not only because you need it to make proteins but because it's a precursor for many many things okay and so uh, because glutamine makes all these different things uh, the regulation of this enzyme is very is very high okay there are other ways to metabolize NH3 but to do it to make glutamine there's a lot of feedback regulation here right so glutamine makes AMP it makes CTP histidine as amounts of these go up, and you don't need to make so much glutamine anymore, this will feed back and inhibit this enzyme. Okay. So it's highly regulated. The enzyme that does this is called glutamine synthase. So we'll make glutamine synthase, we'll take an ATP and an ammonia and convert glutamate to glutamine. So that's this. Another picture of that is, is here. We've got glutamate. This is what glutamate looks like. This is the nitrogen I told you about. This is the... Um, front end of an, of an amino acid, the general NH2 and NH3 that all amino acids have. This is the alpha carbon, this is the carbonyl carbon, the car carboxylic acid. And then the R group of glutamic acid is just a carboxylic acid group. And then when you take an ATP and ammonium and you put it on here, you make glutamine. Okay? So glutamine is not charged, but it's polar, right? It's got an NH2 and a carbonyl on it. So, so that's one way we can assimilate ammonia or ammonium. Another way we can do it is glutamate dehydrogenase, right? We talked a bit about this enzyme when we were talking about the malate aspartate shuttle, okay? When you take a carbon skeleton, alpha-ketoglutarate, right? The, alpha, the carbon skeleton for alpha-ketoglutarate is the same carbon skeleton as for glutamic acid. So we take alpha-ketoglutarate and we can take NH4 and NADH and we basically uh, reduce alpha-ketoglutarate with this NH4 to make glutamate. Right? So in this case, uh, this part of alpha-ketoglutarate becomes the R group, and we're basically taking this carbonyl here and putting on an amino group. Right? So that's another way we can make, uh, we can assimilate NH4. And something that we're going to talk about a little bit today and also next lecture is this idea of kind of movement of these molecules around the bloodstream to metabolize, keep everything happy in different tissues. Uh, glutamine you're going to see is something that we move around a lot to kind of keep uh, nitrogen levels happy in different parts of the body. If you've got too much nitrogen, you're breaking down nitrogen, uh, often it's through glutamine that that nitrogen will be brought to the liver for excretion eventually. I'm not sure. Uh, shouldn't be CO2. 
it should be a water. There's no, there's no loss of carbon. There's no loss of carbon. If this is a five carbon skeleton, this is also a five carbon skeleton. Yeah. So you're basically emanating that oxygen, and I expect it would come off as a water. Sorry, this is glutamate. This is not glutamine. This one, yeah. If we were making glutamine, then it would be a two-step process with both enzymes. Yeah. So alpha ketoglutarate to glutamate. Sorry, if I said glutamine, I would. I misspoke. This is this is glutamic acid. So uh, now we're going to talk a little bit about how we. So we talked a little bit about how we assimilate ammonia or ammonium. Now we're going to talk about moving nitrogen groups from things that have nitrogens to things that need nitrogens. Okay? Um, one way, so there's a lot of amino acids or compounds that have nitrogen in them that get their nitrogens from the amido group nitrogen of glutamine via this enzyme glutamine amidotransferase. So when we're talking about the amido nitrogen, right, not the amino nitrogen, this is the amino nitrogen. This is the one that's at the this is the same NH3 that every amino acid has, right? The, the standard amino acid uh, carb, uh, skeleton, right? It's an amino group, an alpha carbon, carboxylic acid group. This is the R group, okay? This is the R group of glutamine. The glutamine has a nitrogen on it, an amido nitrogen, okay? And this nitrogen can be the source for some enzyme, for some molecules that need nitrogen. So if we take that off, right, so basically you've got this enzyme, this glutamine amidotransferase. It's got this glutamine binding domain. It pulls off the nitrogen and puts it, and then uh, the um, remaining skeleton gets covalently linked to the cysteine, right, this, so you get this glutamyl enzyme intermediate. That releases basically ammonia, free ammonia, which runs down this little ammonium channel, right? In the enzyme, there's this little channel that, that ammonium runs down, at which point the acceptor molecule, some sort of activated substrate or something that's got a ketone group in it, will come in and the other half of this enzyme will transfer that uh, ammonia group to that molecule that's going to get a nitrogen, okay? So now that will split off, you're gonna have this new molecule that has an, uh, a nitrogen on it, okay? And what you have left here, when this comes off, you started with glutamine, you took off the N that was in the R group, and so you end up with glutamate, right? So that's basically the reverse of this reaction. You had glutamine with a amido nitrogen, you cut that off, you split that off and put it on something else, and you're left with glutamate, okay, glutamic acid. So that is one way in which molecules that get nitrogen put on them, that's one way that happens. Yeah. Uh, so you guys are just taking chemistry, you know, right? Uh, my understanding is this, it's this NH2 that's, that's linked to this carbonyl here, okay? This is an amino nitrogen, right? NH2, NH3. This is an amido nitrogen. Right? It's, the, it's, it's, you can, for the purpose of the course, not from a chemistry standpoint, but for the purpose of the course, the amido nitrogen of glutamine is the one that's on the R group. The amino nitrogen is the one that's the same across all amino acids. All amino acids have an amino nitrogen. Except maybe proline, right? Proline doesn't have that. It's got a slightly different one. Proline's got an I minor one, right? It's not NH2, it's NH, I think. Okay. So that's one way in which we uh, put nitrogens on other things, from glutamine to make glutamate, okay? The other way you can do it is you take 
the amino group of glutamate, all right, uh, or the amino group of another amino acid, and you use what's called um, an amino transferase. Okay, so this was glutamine amidotransferase. This would be an amino transferase, depending on which amino acid you're transferring. So you're basically taking um, the NH3 of one amino acid and flipping it onto another amino acid. And the amino acid that's, it's drawn here as glutamate being the one that gets uh, aminated. Uh, and that can certainly happen. It's often going the other way. It's often glutamate, that's the L-amino acid down here, that's giving its nitrogen to another carbon skeleton to make a different amino acid. So what, basically what's happening, is there, what's happening here is you've got an alpha keto acid. That means a carbon skeleton, right? that does not have a nitrogen on it. And another amino acid will take its nitrogen, okay, and put it on that carbon skeleton to make the respective amino acid for that carbon skeleton, right? So for example, glutamate has the exact same carbon skeleton as alpha-ketoglutarate, alpha which we've talked about already. If you aminate alpha-ketoglutarate, you get glutamate. So what can happen is some other amino acid will donate its nitrogen in an enzyme that uses, that's, that's called an amino transferase, it donates its nitrogen to a carbon skeleton, an alpha keto acid, to make a new amino acid. And what you get is the alpha keto acid associated with that amino acid that was the donor. Okay. Often this amino acid that does this is glutamate. It doesn't have to be glutamate, it could be other ones. Right? But we're basically, this is basically an amino swap. We're basically taking the amino group from amino acid one and putting it on amino acid and out and putting it on alpha keto acid to make amino acid two and the alpha keto acid of the carbon skeleton of the donor. Okay. This is important. I mean, one of the reasons this is important is because uh, this is also done for a lot of breakdown. The way it's drawn here, uh, where the amino group is getting transferred to glutamate. That's also very important because when we're breaking down amino acids, when we're uh, taking amino acids and turning them over, often uh, the amino group of the amino acid that's to be broken down is transferred to alpha-ketoglutarate to make glutamate. Okay, so glutamate is kind of the receptor of amino groups, often, and subsequently after that, often glutamine. These are receiving nitrogens for the purpose of getting rid of nitrogen. If you've got an excess of nitrogen, you've been overloading on your protein, and you need to get rid of excess nitrogen, you're on the South Beach diet or something like that, it's not good for you, but uh, you want to get rid of that excess nitrogen, and this is often the way it happens. Okay. For these um, amino transferase enzymes, we're taking an amino group and transferring it between amino acids. They always have this cofactor in them, PLP. Okay? It's called pyridoxal phosphate. Okay? All amino transferases use PLP as a cofactor. They transiently bind the amine on their way to passing it on to, in this case, glutamate. Okay? So you've got basically, here's pyridoxal phosphate. This is the amino acceptor. And then we've transiently put that amino group onto PLP before it's passed on to glutamate. This is also called vitamin B6. Okay. You often find these metabolism enzymes. They're all, the, they, they have, they're all the B enzymes. All the ones that deal with taking nutrients and metabolizing them. We often find that those, they're the B vitamins. Yeah? Okay. You don't need to know the structure. Don't memorize the structure. But you should know that PLP is a cofactor in amino transferases. Okay, so when we're talking about synthesizing amino acids, okay, this gets a little bit to that point I made a couple slides ago, this idea of the carbon skeletons, right? Where do we get the carbon skeletons to make the amino acids? Well, they all come from various intermediates that can be used, they come from glycolysis, 
citric acid cycle, another pathway we talked about that we didn't really get, sorry, another pathway that we haven't really talked about, pentose phosphate. Pentose phosphate is important for making the sugars in nucleotides, okay? The amino group usually comes from glutamate. Okay, that's kind of what I talked about. So for example, so we talked about how glutamate, right, has the same carbon skeleton as alpha-ketoglutarate, right? So uh, if you aminate alpha-ketoglutarate, you make glutamate. And if you put another nitrogen on glutamate, you make glutamine, okay? On the other hand, and we talked about this also when we were talking about the malate-aspartate shuttle, oxaloacetate has the exact same carbon skeleton as aspartate. And then if you aminate aspartate again, for another amino group on aspartate, you get asparagine, okay? One thing that we'll cover in a few slides or in a bit next class is alanine. It's the exact same thing with pyruvate and alanine. Alanine looks exactly like pyruvate, but it's got an amino group on it where pyruvate would have a carbonyl, okay? So this is kind of a common theme. You often have these carbon skeletons that swap from being amino acids to being glycolysis or Krebs cycle intermediates. And then what will often happen is once you make alanine, then it can be subsequent some more steps that make valine and isoleucine. And then you've got um, histidine's a weird one. It only, it's the only one that comes from this ribose 5-phosphate kind of branch. Um, I want to jump ahead to this. This is just another form of that slide. Okay, so we've got all these different things that are used, that, that all these different steps that are, come from pathways we've covered, right? We've got pyruvate. Pyruvate looks exactly like alanine, except it's missing its, that, that nitrogen. Once you've made alanine, you then go on to make these ones. Here are the alpha-ketoglutarate-related ones. Here are the oxaloacetate-relevant ones, okay? So there's, there's basically a lot of crosstalk between the amino acids and the carbon skeletons, okay? I think it's important to know which families the amino acids come from. I don't think it's as important to know which ones are essential to mammals. Okay. So why would we ever want to break down? So we talked a little bit about Synthesis of amino acids, we want to talk a little bit about amino acid breakdown now. Why would we ever want to break down amino acids, okay? We can't, we can't store amino acids, okay? We don't really have a way to do that effectively. Okay? So we need to break them down if we have more than we need. So if you're eating a very protein-rich diet, then you want to, you're going to have to get rid of that excess nitrogen. Um, that's very hard on your kidney, by the way, so you want to be careful about that. You know, there's also normal protein turnover that happens. You, you're always synthesizing proteins. You're always breaking down proteins. So kind of all metabolites in living systems, there's this balance between synthesis and breakdown. You can also use amino acids as food if you're starving, right? So your body will tend to, uh, if, you, if you're hungry, your body will tend to deplete your glucose and glycogen stores first. Then it will deplete your fat stores. And if you're out of fat, then it will start to degrade your, you'll start to wait, we say it's wasting, you'll start to break down your muscles, right? Or your tissues that are basically very protein rich, okay? So we wanna break our amino acids down as simply as possible into a common metabolite that we can then generally excrete, okay? This requires, and typically starts with the removal of the amino groups or a deamination reaction. So we're going to basically talk a little bit about this now. So we've got this general pathway of amino acid breakdown. Okay. We've got our intracellular protein and our dietary protein, which will be broken down into amino acids. And this is kind of a, a theme that I've, that I've touched on a few times now. When you deaminate amino acid, you're going to get a resulting carbon skeleton, an alpha keto acid that is some version often of either direct, either directly or not very far removed from an alpha keto acid that's an intermediate in something like glycolysis or, or citric acid cycle. And so as you're breaking down your intercellular proteins, you get rid of the nitrogen, you're left with the carbon skeleton, you can metabolize that. That's what will happen if you're breaking down your proteins to, to not starve. 
Okay, so you can put those in the citric acid cycle. Um, if you have an excess of protein, right, if you're not starving, uh, you just have an excess of protein, then instead of burning those alpha keto acids, you're going to potentially break down those proteins, put them into oxaloacetate, and then build glucose from that. Okay? You're just going to generate new glucose from that. The point is that you're going to be able to use some of these carbon skeletons. Uh, we're not going to talk about this aspartate arginosuccinate shunt so much, except you should understand in general uh, some of these citric acid cycle uh, skeletons are important for basically, we, we, we siphon them off of citric acid cycle, and we'll talk about this a little bit. We siphon some carbon skeletons off of citric acid cycle, and then we go through several intermediates uh, that metabolize this ammonium into what's called the urea cycle. Okay, so we need to, at least in, in mammals, in animals, uh, we need to get rid of that uh, excess nitrogen. And the way mammals do that is by making this molecule called urea. We talked about urea in class one. Remember the synthesis of, this was the birth of biochemistry, right? You need a, urea is only made in a, in a living animal, not in the lab. Uh, and then Wohler showed that he could make it in the lab, and that was the beginning of the end of vitalism, or at least one of the beginnings of the end of vitalism. So we're going to basically take that ammonia that comes off, or ammonium or ammonia, that comes off of amino acids, and we're going to take some carbon skeletons from citric acid cycle and make some new compounds that are going to basically split off a urea molecule, and then we're going to excrete that. Okay. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about kind of how we, how we do that. How, we, how, how do we get that ammonia first? All right. So... Largely, the amino group catabolism occurs in the liver. The liver is going to come up a lot in this class and in the, in the next class. So much of kind of how we juggle metabolites happens in the liver. And when, you know, when I was a kid growing up, you know, you, it's easy to conceptualize what the heart does and the lung does, and I didn't really understand what the liver does. Part of that's because the liver does a lot of things, right? And so, so this is one of the things the liver does, right? So you've got your amino acids that are ingested as proteins. You've got cellular proteins that are turning over, and you've got your amino acids. And we talked about this already. We're going to take that amino group of uh, the amino acids. We're going to get, uh, we're going to take alpha ketoglutarate, and we're going to take that amino group and make glutamic acid from it. Okay? And then we've got this resulting carbon skeleton, which we talked about. That can either go into Krebs cycle and be broken down. It can go into Krebs cycle and make oxaloacetate, which can be reverse converted back into glucose if need be. So now what we've done is we've taken that amino group from cellular proteins and we've made glutamate from it. Okay. The other place we can get that from, this can be from basically a breakdown from other tissues. So uh, when we need to break down nitrogen from other parts of the body, not cellular proteins in the liver, uh, nitrogen that needs to be broken down from the muscle typically arrives at the liver as alanine. Uh, skeletal muscle, that is. Um, glutamine from, um, sorry, nitrogen from other muscle and from other tissues typically arrives in the uh, liver as glutamine. Okay. So basically, we've got alanine and glutamine circulating through the bloodstream, and excess levels of that are going to be picked up by the liver for nitrogen excretion. Okay. When alanine arrives from the muscle, it's going to split off its. Uh, uh, nitrogen group, okay? So we've got uh, alpha ketoglutarate, which will take that amino group and again make glutamate from it. We talked about how the carbon skeleton of alanine is pyruvate. So when you pull that amino group off of alanine, you make pyruvate. Again, you take alpha ketoglutarate, same as over here. You put that amino group on it and you make glutamic acid. Uh, you can also get glutamine from the muscle. You're going to take the amido uh, nitrogen off of glutamine, again, to make uh, glutamate. The point is that we're taking nitrogens from various sources to make basically ammonium in the liver, which is then going to be passed on into urea, into the urea cycle. Okay, so this is kind of the, 
the, the reception of, of nitrogen from the rest of the body. We haven't really started making urea yet. We've put our, we've taken our nitrogen coming in from, from different parts of the body, amino acids that are ingested, alanine that's coming from the skeletal muscles to be broken down, glutamine from other tissues, and we're basically making, we're commonly putting it on to glutamate, which then splits it off, which is then going to be shunted into the urea cycle. Urea cycle in the context of mammals, uh, uric acid if you're a bird, and a lot of other organisms just, if you're a fish, it just kind of, you make ammonium and it just floats away because you're swimming, right? Um, something that's kind of uh, an important thing to bear in mind, you know, why, okay, why alanine? Why glutamine? Why glutamate? Uh, another one that we're going to talk about when we get to urea cycle is oxaloacetate. Why these ones? Why, sorry, um, aspartate. Why these amino acids? Why are we funneling our nitrogen metabolism through glutamate, glutamine, alanine, aspartate? It's because, it's thought to be because, you know, the deamination of these amino acids get directly put into Krebs cycle or citric acid cycle. You deaminate uh, glutamine, you get glutamate. You deaminate glutamate, you get alpha-ketoglutarate. You deaminate aspartate, you get oxaloacetate. You deaminate alanine, you get pyruvate. These are directly capable of going right into citric acid cycle without any more manipulation. And so with other amino acids, it may be a bit trickier, right? The remaining carbon skeleton of a deaminated serine is not necessarily going to give you something that's directly put into citric acid cycle. Okay. So it's thought that that's one of the reasons why uh, you have these amino acids that are these kinds of highly metabolized ones in this process. So we talked about the skeletal muscles taking alanine. This is called the, the glucose alanine cycle, which moves nitrogen from the skeletal muscles to the liver. So you've got uh, glucose, right, which is doing glycolysis. It's going to make pyruvate. Uh, you've got muscle protein, which you want to potentially break down. So you're breaking down amino acids in the muscle you swap glutamate into alpha-ketoglutarate, and you aminate pyruvate into alanine. Okay. Alanine will be transferred through the blood uh, to the liver, where it gets aminotransferased back into glutamate. The remaining ammonium will be passed into urea cycle, which we'll talk about. You can then take pyruvate and back convert that into glucose using gluconeogenesis. That glucose can then go back to the muscle. So this is basically a transport system for taking excess muscle protein, excess uh, nitrogen in the skeletal muscle, and moving it through the bloodstream, either as blood alanine and blood glucose, for the purpose of, of excreting that excess uh, nitrogen. Could another reason be that they're non-essential amino acids? Yeah, that makes sense too. I mean, these are amino acids. So some amino acids, we've lost the ability to make ourselves. Some amino acids, we still make ourselves. And yeah, the, the, the red letter ones, the big ones that are involved not only in making proteins, but in making, that, that they're intermediates in metabolism, those tend to be the ones that we can still make. Yeah, so I don't know if it's, uh, I don't know if it's, these amino acids were chosen because we can still make them. I think it's probably the other way around. We can still make them because they're so important. Do you know what I mean? We lost the ability to make the other ones, like tryptophan, stuff like that. We lost the ability to synthesize those ones ourselves because we don't need a lot of tryptophan. We don't ever use tryptophan to move things around the body. We only need tryptophan to make protein, and even then it's a pretty rare amino acid. Yeah. Yeah. So once, you, once, so the purpose of this is to get rid of, is to break down muscle for the purpose of, and you, and when you break down muscle, you need to get rid of that nitrogen, right? So, so this, you don't want circulating ammonium. It's bad. It's toxic. So you put it on pyruvate to make alanine. 
you move it through the blood as alanine, you remake pyruvate, so you've basically done the reverse of what you did up here. Now you've got this free NH4. So when you split off uh, the NH4 off of alpha-ketoglutarate and made glutamate, when you, when you take this NH4 off of glutamate, you're going to remake alpha-ketoglutarate again. Okay? But now you've got NH4 in the liver, which is going to be then made into urea, which you can circulate through the bloodstream. That's right. But it's going to be, yeah, so you're going to remake, I mean, they could probably draw that arrow going back up here, right? You're going to remake alpha-ketoglutarate then. Yeah. Um, some interesting things about breakdown of certain amino acids, right? Um, if you look at a can of Diet Coke or many other things, you'll often see this little label, phenylketoureates. Nope, this product contains phenylalanine. So some people, so this is the way you break, I don't expect you to memorize this, except for kind of what I'm going to say. All right. This is phenylalanine. When you're breaking down phenylalanine, the first thing that happens is this enzyme phenylalanine hydroxylase uh, converts phenylalanine to tyrosine. Okay, so phenylalanine looks a lot like tyrosine with the exception of this, um, this well, phenylalanine is identical to tyrosine with the exception of this hydroxyl group. Um, some people have a defect in this enzyme, this PKU, okay, this phenylalanine hydroxylase. Um, and so what happens is if you have a defect in that enzyme, then what you can get is accumulation of phenylalanine in, in the body. And, and that can be a problem. Um, if it's left untreated, this can lead to things like mental retardation. Uh, you want to... Uh, so you want to be aware of what foods have a lot of phenylalanine in them and avoid them. Okay? You, you, you treat this disease by having a diet that's low in phenylalanine, higher in tyrosine. The, the, the trace, the lower amounts of phenylalanine you take, you get, uh, you can use that to, to, for your phenylalanine requirements, but you don't want phenylalanine building up. This, this affects people that have a mutation in this phenylalanine hydroxylase. They get this disease, this phenylketourea. So this is kind of what I talked about a little bit. Um, in mammals, we excrete uh, our excess nitrogen as urea. Birds and reptiles excreted as uric acid. Um, many fishes, most of uh, these uh, organisms, many organisms just excreted as, as ammonia. Okay. So how do we make urea? This is the urea cycle. Uh, it's very complex. Um, I want to make some, I want to point some things out about it that I think are important. Other than that, I don't expect you to memorize structures, certainly. Okay. Um, so the urea cycle, this is the way we're going to take that NH4. We're going to have it, that NH4 ammonia on certain molecules, and we're going to create a system, of, a cycle that to make urea that's going to be split off and, and degraded, or excreted through the kidney. Okay. Um, First of all, the urea cycle takes place again in the liver. Okay. I want you to note the origin of the two ureas that are lost, the two nitrogens that are lost as, as urea. One comes from aspartate. Okay. So that one is uh, here. Okay. So we have this aspartic acid. Okay. There's a NH3 here. It's going to um, split that uh, nitrogen off and make oxaloacetate. Okay. Sorry, 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 my bad. We've got this oxaloacetate that's going to make aspartate, and then aspartate comes down here, and that, this is where the nitrogen is going to get put on. Okay, so one of the nitrogens that's going to be excreted at, is from aspartic acid. The other nitrogen that's going to get, get put on comes from this carbamoyl phosphate. And carbamoyl phosphate is going to get 
its nitrogen from any number of things. It can be glutamine, okay? It can be glutamate, which will split off an amino group and make alpha-ketoglutarate. The glutamine and glutamate, as we've talked about in previous slides, you can make glutamine and glutamate from any number of amino acids that lose their amino group. You get a respective alpha-keta acid carbon skeleton. So you're going to make glutamine and glutamate. This NH4 is going to get put on, and you're going to make this, this molecule called carbamoyl phosphate. Okay? So there's an Na N2 here, and there's an N2 on aspartic acid. Right? And then there's going to be a varying number of steps that I'm not going to talk about. I don't want to talk about the enzymes or the intermediates too much, except to say that eventually what you make is arginine, the amino, the amino acid arginine. Right? If you remember, the amino acid arginine has these two nitrogens on the end of its R group. Okay? That's what arginine looks like. And the reason I want to point out in particular arginine is because the end of the arginine R group looks pretty much exactly like urea. And that's what happens. Uh, you've taken this one nitrogen from aspartic acid. You've taken this other nitrogen that came from carbamoyl phosphate. You've put them together, and eventually you made arginine. You split off the R group of arginine, or at least the end of the R group of arginine, and you make urea. Okay? And this is what's going to be lost. And I think that's enough. We don't need to get into it in too much more detail than that. Right? Carbamoyl phosphate, aspartic acid, they have nitrogens that combine to make arginine. The end of the R group of arginine comes off to make urea. In terms of intermediates and carbon skeletons, I think that's good. The one thing I want to point out also is just what's in here. This does require energy. Okay? You're going to use two ATPs to make carbamoyl phosphate up here. So it's two ATPs to two ADPs. And one... Uh, so there's an intermediate in here that gets adenylated. It gets an AMP on it, which we've seen before. We've seen this many times, where an enzyme or an intermediate gets an AMP attached to it. That's here. You've got this ah, ATP here. Okay? There's going to be this intermediate that has an AMP attached to it, and then at a subsequent step, the AMP is going to be cut off. Right? And so what you've done here is you've effectively converted an ATP to an AMP. So you need two ATPs to ADP and one ATP to AMP. So you need three ATPs to do this, but one of them is an ATP to AMP. So if we're talking about kind of hydrolyzable phosphates that are needed to do one urea, it's four, right? Two from ATP to ADP, right? Because you need two of them. That's one times two. And uh, a 2 times 1, so to speak. If you follow me? Follow me? Yeah. 2, 2 times 1 phosphate coming off. So 1 phosphate coming off from ADP, ATP to ADP, but you need 2 ATPs. Right? And 1 ATP cutting off 2 phosphates to make an AMP. So a total of four phosphates. Yeah? Okay. So there are several metabolic disorders of the urea cycle. Some clinical symptoms present as hyper Ammonemia, too much ammonia in the, in the bloodstream. This can cause nausea. You feel not so good after you've had a high-protein meal. And this can cause gradual mental retardation. Okay? And this is often caused by genetic deficiencies of enzymes in the urea cycle. Not inactive enzymes. That would, be, that would cause death. Right? You, need, you need to excrete nitrogen. But these might be enzymes that are a little less active. Okay? So how can we treat these diseases. Is there another way we can get rid of excess ammonia? Well, now that we understand how ammonia or nitrogen is metabolized, 
we can treat such patients with low protein diets so they don't take in an excess of protein. And they're supplemented, they supplement that diet with alpha keto acids that pick up the excess ammonium. Okay? So, for example, if you put you know, alpha keto isovalerate in someone's diet, okay, this is the alpha keto carbon skeleton of valine. So, if this person has a lot of this in their food and it becomes abundant in their cells, well, then it's easy then for the cell to take excess ammonia and just put that onto this carbon skeleton and make valine. Okay. So yeah, they shouldn't have they shouldn't have a problem absorbing this. If they if they had another genetic deficiency that caused them to not be able to absorb this, then that would be a subsequent problem. Um, but this this shouldn't be something they have too much trouble with. But it's not something that's very common in food. Do you know what I mean? So we intentionally add it into a diet of someone that has this type of, of condition. Right? So we take these alpha keto acids that are basically carbon skeletons lacking the ammonia group of a particular amino acid. So by doing this, right, by making these carbon skeletons, this also helps them be okay with the low protein diet, right? You know, a low protein diet's a bad idea if you don't have a lot of valine, right? But if you've got a lot of ammonia, too much ammonia, and you feed them a lot of this, well then you're killing two birds with one stone. You, you, soak, you soak up the excess ammonia by giving them the carbon skeleton that will join with ammonia to make valine. In so doing, you make valine, which compensates for the low protein diet. Okay? And so there's, and there's several different carbon skeletons you can use to do that. I don't necessarily need you to memorize these things except to understand kind of the, the theory, the strategy of it. Another thing I want to point out a little bit, um, again, these are, these are pathways we're not going to go into much detail on, meaning no detail, uh, but you should understand that uh, many amino acids are precursors for making things that you might not think are related to amino acids. So for example, uh, this is histidine. You've got this uh, pyridoxal phosphate-containing enzyme histidine decarboxylase, which knocks this carboxylic acid group off of histidine and makes histamine. This is how you make histamine in the body. My father-in-law probably has an overactive histidine decarboxylase because he's got really bad allergies. I can't complain. I'm allergic to nuts, so probably do too. Um, on the other hand, you know, tyrosine is a precursor for several things. Uh, dopamine, this is a very important molecule in the nervous system. Subsequently, dopamine is metabolized to make uh, epinephrine, which is a very important molecule with respect to kind of uh, fight or flight response. It's also in my EpiPen if I eat a nut when I'm not supposed to. Right? Tryptophan, uh, goes through several steps to make serotonin. You guys may know what serotonin is. This is a molecule that's associated with sleep regulation. Uh, I used to actually show a clip at this point in this course, but I think you guys are too young. You guys, this is too old for you guys now. There's this, I mean, you, some of you may remember there's a Seinfeld episode where, do you guys remember this one? You guys are aware of Seinfeld? Um, there's a Seinfeld episode where Jerry and George are doing what they always do, which is just be stupid and do things they're not supposed to do. Um, they want to make their host, or sorry, their guest, sleepy. And so, uh, because they want to, it's not worth it. Uh, they want her to fall asleep, and so, nothing unsavory. Uh, and, and so they, they feed her lots of turkey, because turkey's full of tryptophan. And the idea is if you feed someone lots of tryptophan or turkey, then they're going to make lots of serotonin and they're going to start feeling sleepy, right? So I always think of that when I, when I see this. You can look it up on YouTube. Just look up Seinfeld tryptophan if you want. Okay. That's it. Okay. So, uh, oh, wait, I have a question. I can't hear. Can you guys stop? Yeah. 
I think it's related. So the question is, does serotonin also have something to do with antidepressants? And I th you're right. Yes, it does. I mean, I think that's not necessarily, I don't know if those are necessarily distinct things. They, they maybe. Okay, a reminder again, office hours are not 10.30 to 11.30. Office hours today are 1 to 2, 1 to 2 p.m.